Hi, everybody. Mark Corona, Chief Marketing Officer with Chief Outsiders, and here's another edition of The Practical CMO. Gosh, today's show is called Leadership, Inspiring People to Be Their Best, and I'm really excited about this show. I'm, I'm going to pose three questions to get us started today. First question is, when you boil down the model for successful leadership, what do you have? I mean, what are those anchor points that are really important, the foundations that sort of are the basis for successful leadership? And then a second question is, how do those key aspects of leadership translate from the military to public companies? And thirdly, is it possible to share practical guidance to help developing leaders grow? So those are the three questions I hope to address today in this podcast. My guest today is Craig Weldon, who's a retired major general in the U.S. Army. Craig also served as a senior executive for nine years in the U.S. Marine Corps in the Executive Services Program. And, you know, if you're aware of the cultural differences between the Army and the Marine Corps, you'll understand just how unique Craig is in bringing his leadership model successfully to both. Craig's a very much an in-demand speaker and author on leadership. He brings a unique perspective built on practical guidance based on his own experiences and learning. And you'll see that one of Craig's characteristics is being authentic. It's not just the situations which went well, which polished Craig's leadership model. It's situations which turned out very differently than expected. So without further ado, Craig, when I was introduced to you and read your book on leadership, you know, I realized very quickly that your view of leadership developed and evolved throughout your career. And, you know, the concepts you share in your book are very practical and based on on-the-ground experiences as both a senior officer in the Army and an executive supporting the Marine Corps and in corporate world as well. So let's jump into this. Welcome, Craig. Let's get started by having you share a little bit of your background with the audience. Yeah, thanks, Mark, and thanks for inviting me today. Let me start with my own discovery of what it meant to be a leader when I became an Eagle Scout at age 14. For me, it was kind of like climbing a mountain. It was to get to the top. And if you can envision the metaphor of Mount Everest, uh, you know, the achievement is when you reach the top. But oftentimes, the most typical part is getting back down. And that's quite frankly where most people die on Mount Everest is coming back down. So I had gotten to the top of the mountain for the Boy Scouts attaining the rank of Eagle Scout at age 14. And somebody said to me, okay, you're now a leader, start leading or words to that effect. And I was absolutely clueless, to be honest with you. I had no idea what leadership was all about. I had never been a leader. For me, the journey was getting to the top of that mountain. And I didn't really know what to do when I got there. So, you know, I learned sort of by making a lot of mistakes. I then went into high school and I was involved in all kinds of leadership roles in high school and then into college and then 30 years in the army. And then after that, I did a short stint of consulting before I returned to the federal government in the senior executive service for the Marine Corps. So I've got probably 40 years of military service to draw on experiences, both good and bad, but also time before that, all the way back to when I achieved that mountaintop in scouting as well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because your analogy of Mount Everest, I just read a quote by Ed Vestures, I think it's how you pronounce his name, you know, a world famous mountain climber. And his quote is, getting to the top is optional, 
getting down is mandatory. <laughs> yeah. it's, like, it's, it's kind of a laughing matter, but it's kind of not because no, again, that's right. people who die, die on the way down. Yeah. So, you know, Craig, there's a lot of military leaders successfully made that successful transition into the world of public company executives. You know, I think the one that everybody has top of mind is Fred Smith, who founded FedEx. And I know that probably wouldn't be surprising to you because you understand very well from a hands-on perspective how leadership qualities translate. But why do you think that people may still be surprised by the success a lot of military leaders have had when they've moved into corporate roles. It's interesting that you mentioned Fred Smith. For your listeners who may not know, he was a Marine in Vietnam, and he credits an awful lot of that experience to how he shaped the culture and still lives by the culture in FedEx. I actually met him about a year and a half ago, he was invited to come speak to the senior leaders of the Marine Corps who gather once a year at Quantico in Virginia. They invited him in 2019 to speak to us. And after he got done, I went up to him and I said, you know, Mr. Smith, I'm writing a book about leadership. The manuscript is done and I'm very shortly going to be sending it to my editor. But I heard some things today that I'd like to incorporate into my book. Would you mind if I do that? And he said, no, not at all. You can take anything you heard. So anybody who's read my book or plans to read my book will find some references to Fred Smith's approach to leadership and culture in Chapter 20. But back to your question, I think most senior leaders grew up in a culture of serving a cause that's bigger than themselves. Most of us join the military to serve the nation, not to serve an individual, not to individually profit or to get rich, but to serve a cause greater than ourselves, which is to serve the country. And it's hard to discard that kind of approach when you leave the military and you get into the next chapter of your life. So I think serving a cause that's greater than yourself, which perhaps is the new devotion that you might have to an organization, to a cause, to a business operation is kind of a carryover from, you know, 20, 30, even 40 years of military service for senior leaders. And you know that serving a cause greater than yourself translates pretty directly in a lot of corporate mission statements and a lot of corporate vision statements, right? And yeah. and that's yeah. really any any corporate executive's opportunity to sort of lay out a goal that's sort of bigger than let's grow 5% next year, right? which isn't particularly aspirational and isn't particularly empowering either, right? I mean, I think, you know, the concept of stretch goals may have come from, you know, the fact that, hey, you know, we, we can do a lot of things. We can't do everything, but we can do a lot of things well. And let's set, you talk a lot about expectations in your book, setting the right expectations for your teams, right? And setting expectations that are often somewhat challenging. Yeah, so setting expectations. Uh, Appendix A of my book is uh, my philosophy of command that I wrote in 1989 when I was coming into battalion command. Battalion command, for your listeners, is really the first time that an officer is leading an organization that has a staff with all the different functions in it, much like a corporation might have, and numbers anywhere from, say, 500 to 1,000 members. I had about 1,000 people in my battalion, and they rotate in and out. 
every couple of years, uh, you'll get new people coming in and people going out. They rotate throughout the entire year that you're there. It's just the nature of the way the military works. And so it is common practice in the military to write a philosophy of command at that level and levels above that so that you establish from the very first day you are there your vision of how you want to lead the organization, where you want it to go, what the acceptable mistakes are, what the boundaries are, what the unacceptable mistakes are, so on and so forth. And so I wrote this down well before word processing. I sat with a yellow legal pad at my kitchen table and I drafted this a couple of months before I took the flag of the 2nd Battalion, 10th Cavalry. And when I got done with it, I typed it up and I sent it out to about a dozen people that I knew, people who had worked for me, people I had worked for and people I had worked with. And I said, this is what I think is important. At least that's what I think I think is important. Mm-hmm. You know me well enough that I would ask for your very, very candid input to tell me whether I'm smoking, you know, funny weed or, yeah. or I'm hitting the target. Right. And I got some great input. Again, reaching out to people above you, below you and next to you. It's what right. they now do with 360 degree evaluations oftentimes, which I think right. is a great tool for self-awareness for leaders. I did some editing and tightening of that thing, but that became the foundation for me to point the direction of my organization for the next two years that I was in command. And again, there's a little bit of military ease in my philosophy of command with acronyms Mm -hmm. and so forth because it was written 30 years ago, over 30 years ago. But I think people will get a sense for what it's all about. And it's really no different than what's done in the corporate world. Yeah. You know, and there's two parts about that that I think are notable that our audience needs to sort of kind of pick up from that. One is that when you took over that command, you said, look, I'm not going to put words in your mouth. So you can say you can say it however you really said it. It's almost like, look, if if you want to work with me effectively, this is who I am. And this is what I expect. And you just laid it out for people. I mean, there was no guessing on their part, you know, what was going to work for you and how you expected to work as a team. Your listeners ought to ask themselves, have they ever worked for somebody who comes into the organization and two months later, they're still trying to figure out what they think is important? And it's maddening. It's absolutely maddening. And so I learned that because I worked for people who didn't tell us the direction that they wanted to go. They didn't tell us what was important to them. And it was crazy. We had to kind of learn by making mistakes. And so I have another appendix in my book. It's Appendix B called Weldon on Weldon. And it is a self-reflection of who I am, what my particular personality quirks are, and what I think is important. Let me tell a quick story. I worked for a three-star general one time. And when he came into the organization, the very first staff meeting that he had, it was at nine o'clock on a Tuesday, I think it was, maybe a Wednesday. And it was in a conference room, had a long table. He sat at the end of the table and all the staff sat on the, around the table. And at the end of the table opposite him, there was a clock on the wall. And I got there about 8.55 and I sat down and we all kind of waited for nine o'clock and people strolled in. When that second hand hit the nine o'clock mark on that clock, he turned to his aide and he said, close the door and lock it. So his aide closed the door and he locked it. And we started the meeting. Well, there were two people on the staff that weren't in the room because they were a little bit late. Mm -hmm. And about a minute or two later, 
they find that the door has been locked and they knock on the door and the commander says to his aide, <laughs> don't open the door. Yeah. So he made a point to all yeah. of it about timeliness right. that day. Now he made it at the expense of those two individuals. And as I reflect back, I say to myself, I wonder if that was the best way to do that. Perhaps what he could have done was allowed them to come in one or two minutes late and then done his Jones on Jones or whatever his, yeah. own, but it's his Weldon on Weldon. And in one of the slides that he throws up, he says, you know, timeliness is a, is a reflection of your discipline. And if you are late for things, then you are undisciplined, which is really his point that he tried to make. But he yeah. made it at a point, And I know that those two colonels went home that night really feeling bad. And it took them a while to get back up on the horse yeah. that they'd just been fallen, fallen off yeah. of. But I'll bet they were never late again. No, they weren't. But again, there's, <laughs> you know, you say to yourself, okay, there's that's a technique. And I kind of subscribe to the other technique, which is just tell everybody up front early on what your particular quirks are. And again, Appendix B in my book says that about yeah. me. And yeah. I did that to every organization that I went to within the first day or two that I was there. And, you know, I mean, I've had some experiences that were somewhat similar. I mean, I appreciate also the transparency that even when you wrote your philosophy of command that you went out and had people validate it, right? People who knew you, the 360 degree view of, okay, this is who I think I am. What do you think, right? Yeah. I mean, I think we all learn from particularly associates that we've worked with for long periods of time. I had a fellow I worked with, he follows me in a three different jobs. And one day he said, you know what? He goes, I get you. You just like to grow things. You know, you grow businesses, you start churches, you grow, you've got a little vineyard. You just like to grow things. And it was like, he put it so succinctly. I would have never have gotten that sort of, you know, succinct view of myself unless I had somebody who felt open enough to sort of come forward and sort of address me that way. But it's also that transparency in terms of, I think it's really important. You know, as you talk about this general that shut the door, there was a vice chairman I worked with at U.S. Bank, and he was also very explicit about his expectations. And when I met him and was hired by the bank, first couple of meetings I was in, he would say, there's no singular personal pronoun in this bank. There's no I, me, or mine. It's we, us, and ours. And he was trying to make two points. One was, this is a team effort. And no one person's responsible for a success and no one person's responsible for a failure. So let's just get the I, me, mine out of our vocabulary, right? You know, you might say it was firing for effect because if somebody did that, if somebody said, in my world, boy, he just jumped down their throat, right? I mean, that was the worst thing you could say because he'd say, you don't have a world. You know, it's all of our world, right? And, you know, we share, we're on this journey together. So. It gets to the issue of self-awareness. If I can tell one more story. Sure. Years ago, when I was working for the Marine Corps, they sent me to a course and they sent all the senior executives to an annual leadership course of some sort. I went to one in Colorado Springs called Leadership at the Peak. And Leadership at the Peak is run by the Center for Creative Leadership. They have campuses around the world in different places. And it's a very, very kind of highbrow leadership course. It's four and a half days and they have only 12 students. Uh, I was the only federal employee in the entire group. 
of the 12, everybody else was a C-suite uh, individual, either a CEO, CFO, COO, CMO. It was a C-suite person. Mm-hmm. And some of them were from foreign countries. I think four of the 12 were from South America, Europe, and different places. In any case, they built up to this course in the months prior by doing 360-degree evaluations and a bunch of other personality tests and all kinds of things. I mean, I had to fill out many, many different forms. And one of them was a 360-degree evaluation where I had to assess myself. And then I had to have 15 other people, my boss, and then 14 anonymous people, most of which worked for me, but some of them worked with me who were peers of mine who did a similar assessment of me. And when we walked into the course for the very first day, on the board, they had displayed a graph of each of us with no names on them, showing the differences between what other people thought about us and what we thought about us. Mm -hmm. Very interesting because they said, all of you are up on this board. You can try to figure out which one you'll learn later in the week, which one is you. But as I looked at that board, the one that was the closest in terms of others and the individual happened to end up being mine. So I had a pretty good self-awareness because of, I think, the way that I had interacted with my organization for decades. But many of those, and if not most of those, had a wide gap between the assessment that others had made and the assessments that they had made about what they thought about the individual. And sadly, it was in the wrong direction. In other yeah. words, the individuals thought much more about their own performance and their their own abilities than other people thought about them. Yeah. So it was a rude awakening for many, many people. And that was yeah. the whole purpose of the course was to wake people up, to make themselves aware and reflect on how can I make myself better? Well, and you know, Craig, I can share an example along that line too. I had to terminate a marketing director and she just wasn't a performer. And I found out, I don't know how she got to the point, how she did, but you know, she didn't even know how to use basic Microsoft tools. She couldn't put a presentation together. And so, you know, I don't know, as, as a marketing person, you know, you sort of live or die by presentations often, right? Just to try to get investment and support. But uh, when I terminated her, she goes, well, I'm actually kind of glad we're doing this. And I said, oh, well, let's talk about that. She said, well, I really didn't like this job anyway. I really think I should be doing the CEO's job. And she was talking about the CEO of a $5 billion information services company. I thought maybe she was kidding around because it's like you're getting terminated multiple levels down from this, but you think you should be doing, you should be the CEO of a $5 billion global corporation. But she was serious. I mean, yeah. she really thought she wasn't that self-aware. No, not at all. Right. I mean, I, I, there's nothing wrong with having a goal, right. To sort of say, I'd love to be, do that job, but you know, you got to sort of qualify at the lower levels first. You brought in a quote from John Wooden. I want to talk a little bit about too, Craig. And that quote is talent is God given, be humble. Fame is man given, be grateful. Conceit is self given, be careful. So, you know, I thought that's pretty relevant to the conversation we just had about self-view, right? And where does this come from? But what, what about that was so compelling that you felt that was important to include it in your book? Yeah. So my editor asked me when I had the basic foundation of the book and the manuscript, he said to me, what's the most important aspect of great leadership? And I said, having strong character. 
And he said, well, then that should be chapter one in your book, because if they don't get that, then they're not going to get anything else. And so that's the reason character, the basic building block of great leaders is chapter one in my book. I like John Wooden. He's one of my heroes, not the least of which is because he was a fraternity brother of mine. Oh, really? Purdue University. Now, he was older than I am, but he was a hero in Beta Theta Pi at Purdue University. He was the one notable person that uh, we all looked up to and aspired to be like. And so I have sort of tracked John Wooden's time. And of course, just the year before I started Purdue, Purdue and UCLA played in the NCAA championship and Purdue lost. UCLA won. John Wooden was a coach. John Wooden was a coach for 10 national championship teams in 12-year period. I mean, it's unbelievable what he did. And not just as a coach. He was an All-American player at five foot, 10 inches tall, three times. Yeah. So he was a remarkable person. But what really made him more remarkable than anything was the way he coached his players and his emphasis on teamwork, not individualism, and his emphasis not just on teamwork on the basketball court, but being a better human being. And that's really why he has got a legacy that carries with him and will for many, many years to come. And so because of my fraternal association with him because of the kind of leader he was, the achievements he did. I put that quotation right below the title of chapter one in my book, the chapter that addresses great character. Let's talk a little bit more about authenticity as a leader, right? And I think for me, often means being willing to sort of recognize when you've succeeded, but also being willing to recognize when you've come up short. And use some examples, too, about sort of, you know, being honest to yourself about things that you did that may not have turned out exactly as you thought. I wonder if you could share an example or two with the audience. Anybody who served in the military will recognize this and perhaps some people who have not. But in the mid 80s, maybe the early 80s, the Army discovered that we need a better way of assessing our training readiness and how well we did something. And they created something called the After Action Review, or AAR for short. And it's been a foundational element of everything that we've done ever since. So I've been doing this for 30 or 40 years now, conducting AARs. And what was interesting about that is that when you get done with a training event or an operational mission, you do an AAR. And it typically is bring all the leaders together shortly after the completion of the training event or the mission. And there's a structure and you talk about what did we do right? What did we do wrong? And typically the leader of the entire organization will stand up at the very beginning and put everybody at ease by stating exactly what that person did right and did wrong. And this is kind of anathema to some other militaries across the world. I served in Europe 10 years, three different times, a total of 10 years. And I did an awful lot of work with the German army, the French army, the Dutch army, the British, the Canadians, you know, all the NATO allies. We did international exercises and so forth, mostly during the Cold War. And many of those countries never would have done that. They never would have had their senior leader, their colonel, their general stand up and admit that he did anything wrong. And in fact, many of the exercises they did were structured 
and predetermined before they even started. So they kind of knew the outcome of success before they began, which is completely contrary to the way the United States military does things. We try to make a free play, introduce uncertainty, have people red team the event. Basically, what that means is that they play the enemy's role to try to screw you up as much as they possibly can and make it as realistic as possible. And so the after action review is an excellent example, I think, of doing a bit of self-reflection, particularly Mm -hmm. for leaders at the completion of anything, quite frankly. I intuitively do an after action review in my head when I do anything. When I go on vacation, when I do something around the house, I say to myself, "Okay, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? How can I make that better in the future? Yeah. And it is part of the military DNA, at least it is for the United States military. And hopefully it has transcended itself across to other militaries because we didn't introduce that to many other militaries. Mm-hmm. You know, I would say I'm a lot like you in that respect, just because I think I have a continuous improvement gene and a continuous learning gene, right? Which makes you sort of go, okay, well, okay, you just got done with something as a way of making it a better outcome, a better process, better quality, right? I just, it just comes natural. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't think about not doing it. It just happens, right? It just gets so yeah. embedded. But, you know, just as a quick aside, I've been reading a biography on Napoleon, and it quotes some of Napoleon's autobiography. And he says, I shouldn't have done this. This is bad timing. I, should, I probably should have done this, right? I mean, okay, now it's late. I can't do anything about it, right? He was in exile on... St. Helena. But nonetheless, it would seem like he was pretty candid about those things that he messed up on, right, along yeah. the way. So I guess there's sort of some historical precedent yeah. from and that. It worked for him pretty well until Waterloo. <laughs> yeah, it did, right? <laughs> right up until the end, right? Right. So, you know, we talk about, you talk about character. I think that's a great place to lead off. But then, you know, some people would likely say, okay, well, how can I build on? I think I've got the good personal attributes and you know, the right kind of character to be successful as a leader. So what do they do next? I mean, as you go about and you've cultivated people in the military and the Army and the Marine Corps and kind of help them develop in their careers, what advice or guidance did you provide those people in terms of practical guidance about how do you build on good traits and good character? Well, character, I think, is the most important trait, obviously, and that's the reason it's in chapter one. And it's the reason the title is character that the basic building block of great leaders. But there's a lot of other aspects. And character is multifaceted. I mean, it involves humility. It involves ambition. It involves uh, what commonly is called grit. And I talk about this extensively. In fact, I think character is so important that at the end of chapter one, I even make a reference to two other books that focus exclusively on character so that people, if they want to do a deeper dive into the issue of character, they can do that. But chapter two, for example, is on trust. Booker T. Washington once said, few things help an individual more than to place responsibility on him and to let him know that you trust him, which I think is important. I used to go into organizations at the outset, unless I knew something was broken and I had to fix it. But assuming that it was pretty much going in the direction that it should, I would tell my organization, look, I trust you until you demonstrate that you're not worthy of that trust. Mm -hmm. And that put a healthy kind of pressure on everybody in the organization that said, wow, you know, he he doesn't even know me, yet he's telling me he trusts me. 
Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, they they felt that what I think is a healthy burden not to violate that trust. Yeah. Tell a short story. I worked for a three star general once, a different three star general than the, the one with the clock. And and he was a consummate gentleman. He never raised his voice in anger. He was soft spoken. He was very, very bright. He was very organized sharpened all his pencils, uh, use a metaphor and lined them up on his desk. He made lists, you know, here's what I'm going to do tomorrow. And then he crossed them off as he did. them. that's kind of the way he was. Mm-hmm. And I had a colonel come up to me. I was his deputy. And I had a colonel come up to me one day and he said, you know, General so-and-so is the toughest guy I have ever worked for. And I thought, really? <laughs> Why is that? Yeah. Because I never wanted to disappoint him. And I thought, wow. That's pretty powerful. You know, this colonel, like so many other people in the organization, including me, woke up every morning wanting to do the best they possibly could for the organization, but also for the boss. Mm-hmm. And the last thing we wanted for was for him to come up to say, you know, I'm really disappointed in you. That would have crushed us. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. We, we thought so much about him. And right. that's so much about his leadership. His caring leadership. Yeah. Uh, and I've got, I don't know how many stories about caring leadership. Many of them yeah. I tell in my book. I want to talk a little bit about personality types. Because when you're just talking about yeah, this guy's the toughest guy I've ever worked with, you know, someone would say, well, did you understand that person? Right. I mean, in, in the book, you talk about how important Myers Briggs type indicator is, the MBTI, right? And you say, oh, you know, I mean, you identify yourself as an ISTJ. And, you know, I, I thought right away, it's like, oh, gosh, all those years that I was taking the Myers-Briggs, you know, every year, every other year, I was an ENTJ, right? An analytical driver, which is a fairly typical sort of corporate profile, right? Corporate leadership profile. But my question to you is, you may have always been an ISTJ. I know I've always been an ENTJ. Do you think your leadership style moderates? as one progresses in their career? I mean, do you think sort of all those points of kind of that are sort of more of the outliers come back to be a norm? Or do you think you just get more rigorously in the profile that you're in? It's, I don't know that there's an answer, but I'd love your perspective on that. For your listeners that may not know what Myers-Briggs is, it's a personality test that you can take online. It takes about 30 minutes and it kind of tells you the type of person that you are. And they identify you with four letters. As you just heard Mark say, he's an ENTJ, I'm an ISTJ. So we have some similar features and some dissimilar features. The E means extrovert, the I means introvert. I'm an introvert, Mark's an extrovert. So why is that important? It's important because I think if you took the test, and again, it's 30 minutes, you can do it for free online, you'll learn kind of what you are. You'll be able to see yourself in the mirror. You'll be able to see your personality in the mirror. But what's most important is understanding that there are 15 other kinds of personalities out there under Myers-Briggs. There's a total of 16 different combinations of these letters, therefore 16 different personalities. And when you go into an organization like I have as an ISTJ, If everybody in the organization was just like me, not only would it be kind of boring, but it would be less productive because diversity is strength. And having an understanding for the other types of personalities that you have in your organization 
is very, very important because you need to know what their strengths and their weaknesses are. In my Weldon on Weldon presentation, which again is in Appendix B of my book, I have a couple of slides that talk about my strengths and my weaknesses. And again, I had those validated by people that have worked around me for many, many years. And I tell people, look, I'm an introvert. And that means that I don't really show my emotions in quite the way perhaps that an extrovert might. That doesn't mean that I care any less than somebody who really shows that. It just mm -hmm. means that my personality is such that it doesn't show. I really, really do care. It just doesn't show as well. And I know that's something I need to work on. I need yeah. to push myself to demonstrate to people how much I care because it's not in my personality and my nature to do that. So I think it's important for people to understand what kind of person they are, what kinds of people are in their organization, what strengths and weaknesses each of them brings to it so they can maximize the strengths and minimize and work on the, the weaknesses. But to your question, my first Myers-Briggs test I took in 1983. I was an ISTJ then. I'm an ISTJ today. Yeah. And it changed a single bit. Yeah. What has changed is that along my journey, and I'll use another metaphor, you're on a path. You're walking down a path in your professional life or your personal life, and there are rocks along the path. And each of those rocks represent experiences that you may have or observations that you may make. Some of them are good and some of them are bad. And what I tell people is pick up all those rocks and put them in your rucksack as you continue down that path, because you want to remind yourself of the things that were really, really good. And you also want to remind yourself not to do the things that are not so good. And I've seen plenty of that in four decades in my journey in the yeah. military. It's what I call virtual mentorship is that you are being mentored every single day by people that don't even know that they're mentoring you just by observing their behavior and picking up saying, you know, if I ever get into that position, I really want to be like that. Yeah. Or, hey, you know, if I ever get in that position, I hope I'm never like that. Right. And I've got plenty of those in my rucksack. From my own experiences, too, I worked for a CEO who was formerly a GE whiz kid. Right. So he was the top of the heap in terms of, you know, having really understood and being effective in the, the GE leadership style. And there were some things that I learned from him I would have never have gotten otherwise. And then there were some things that he did, which were like, gosh, I would never do that or say that. Right. I think you have to have some discernment. Right. And kind of knowing yourself to sort of say, well, I'd never treat somebody that way. So you, you can learn from every situation. And I've also myself learned that years later, people will come back and they'll say, you know, Mark, remember you used to say, you know, this, or you used to say that. And you're like, gosh, I do remember it. I haven't said it for a while, but that person remembered it, right? And was important for them. So I think, you know, when we're in the leadership roles that someone is always learning from what we're saying and what we're doing, trying to put, put the picture together. Yeah, let me tell you another quick story. I was in the Pentagon about three or four years ago, I guess it was. And this fellow, I was walking through a section of the Pentagon and somebody saw me and they stopped me and they said, are you General Weldon? And I said, well, I used to be. <laughs> I retired <laughs> I retired 17 years ago or 15 years ago or whatever. But yeah, I'm, I'm Craig Weldon. He said, sir, you sent me a letter when I became a base commander as a lieutenant colonel in Korea 
in, I think it was 1998, which was at the time 20 years ago. And he said, I can't tell you how much that meant to me. Now, I didn't even know this guy. But yeah. When the battalion command list came out and they identified who was going to go command a tactical unit and who was going to command a base, I wrote a letter to everyone that was on the base command list. Why? Because I was a former base commander and I was the first former base commander to be promoted into the general officer ranks. Mm -hmm. And base command was not something that you aspired to be when you were growing up in the army. You didn't join the army to run a daycare center, pay electricity bills, build buildings, have town halls, do, you know, meetings with employees and trade unions and all that sort of thing. You didn't join the army to do that. I joined the army to be a tanker and a cavalryman. And that's what I did for 20 years until they made me a base commander. And I remember going into that job thinking, I'm not supposed to be here. I got to the fork in the road and I was supposed to go left and circumstances took me right. And this isn't supposed to be happening. And several people tried to get a change to keep me in that tactical lane and they failed because the four-star general in charge of Europe at the time, and that's where I was, said, you know, we need good people running bases, just like we need good people in tanks battalion. I'm not going to go back to the big army and ask them to change Weldon's assignment. Oh, by the way, he lives in the community, which he's now being assigned to command. He's a customer. He understands the community. It's a square peg in a square hole. And I yeah. learned in about three months that that was the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah, I learned more about myself. I learned more about trusting other people. I learned more about the army and leading people, because up until that point, I had led nothing but soldiers, and 99% of them were male. Mm -hmm. I had a 3,000-man organization, half of which were female, 95% of which were civilians, and half of which were German, Mm -hmm. some of which didn't even speak English. And I'll tell you, I had to get on that hobby horse and ride it pretty quick. And one of the things I learned from that was how wonderful it was which I didn't recognize, to be leading an organization like that, serving my community, taking care of 45,000 people who lived in my community. And so I wanted to now, I sort of became the poster child of former base commanders when I became a general because everybody said, hey, look, Weldon became a general. You can't do And so I would send a letter to every new base commander telling them what a wonderful adventure they're about to experience. And this fellow... 20 years after he took command of a base in Korea, who had never met me until about two or three years ago when he saw me in the Pentagon, told me, he says, you know, I've saved that letter and you were absolutely right. It was the best thing that ever happened to Mm -hmm. me. I'll tell your listeners, you know, you get to a fork in the road, circumstances take you in a direction you don't think. Oftentimes it turns out just fine. I took a left at a fork where I thought I should be taking a right And I can't tell you the number of things, good things that have happened to me because I took that road less traveled. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's right. We've covered so much ground, but I think one of the last things that we've talked about really is put yourself in a position where you're open to new challenges, right? Because sometimes people will see things about you and, you know, want you to get into a situation that you might not think you're interested in, or you may not think benefits your career, or you may not think will further develop you. But in the end, all those things in aggregate really kind of help shape your leadership experience, right? It makes for a very healthy leadership model when people have those broader sets of skills and experiences, I think. 
to try to summarize your book, there's so much content in there. And I'll, I'll just tell the audience, look, this is a leadership manual, I think. It's practical, practical guidance, effectively organized. It's all about what Craig's experiences are, and he's really open about that. It's a different kind of leadership book in a really good way, and I would really encourage you to track it down. There's a link in the introduction to this show where you can find the book, and there's also Craig's LinkedIn profile there, too, if you've got any follow-up questions. But I guess there, is there any, any sort of summary comments you'd like to make as we kind of bring this show to a wrap? Yeah, Mark, one of the quotations I use in my book is from Rudyard uh, Kipling. He said, if I have seen further, it is by standing on the shoulder of giants. And that's exactly what I did when I was a base commander. I stood on the shoulders of giants. I put trust in them when I really didn't know much about how to run a base. And I said, you know, I'm going to ride this pony with you and I'm here to help you in any way. So you need to educate me. You need to help me understand what your needs are so that I can reach out externally and bring resources to bear to help the organization writ large. I think that really is a key takeaway. But to your point, there are a couple of points that I'd leave people with. First of all, learning never stops. If somebody thinks they know it all, they're wrong because learning never stops. Secondly, it's never too late to start something new. It's never too late to start climbing a new mountain. I climbed several mountains in my lifetime. I climbed the Eagle Scout Mountain when I was 14. I climbed the Army Mountain when I was in the Army. I climbed the Marine Corps Mountain when I was with the Marine Corps, so on and so forth. But at 68 years old, I started climbing a new mountain as an author and as a speaker. And I started at the bottom of this mountain and I'm still towards the bottom, but I'm climbing it. And it's all about the adventure and the journey itself, not necessarily reaching the top because it's the journey that really drives me every single day. I have a chapter in my book called How Tall Is Your Ladder? And I won't tell that story because we're probably pressed for time, but I would encourage people to read it. But it basically is climbing the ladder of your corporate life, your professional life, or your personal life. Everybody has got a last rung on their ladder somewhere. And oftentimes, it's not the top rung. It's somewhere in between. And when you get to that top rung, be satisfied. Don't be bitter. Don't be sad that you can't get to the next rung on the ladder. And I've met too many people uh, who leave the Army in particular or the Marine Corps. Uh, and I'll use a couple of examples of colonels who were very, very, very talented, who didn't become generals. And they left with bitterness and they carried that bitterness for them for years. Mm -hmm. And what I used to tell them was get on another ladder, you know, get off that ladder. That's behind you. Look forward. Get on another ladder and start climbing again. And that's what I've done. When somebody suggested that I write a book, somebody said to me two years ago, what do you want to do when you retire? I said, I want to give back decades of leadership and life experiences to the next generation. And they said, well, you need to write a book. And I said, a book? Are you kidding me? I can't write a book. I had never written a book before. I'd written articles and I thought I was a pretty fair writer, but I had never written a book. Well, I, as you know, I ended up writing a book. It's won three awards, national awards. It's the number one international bestseller. It's done very, very well. It's been downloaded over 5,000 times across the world. So, you know, I started climbing that ladder then, uh, not knowing how far I would get up the ladder. 
And each rung that I grab and get to the next rung, I can see the one above it. But I do understand that at some point, I'm not going to be Tony Robbins. I'm going to get to the last rung on my ladder and I'll be completely satisfied when I do, because hopefully somebody will have become better as a result of my journey. Well, thanks so much for sharing openly and honestly. I mean, there's so much in your book and it's so empowering. You know, if I was going to write an after action report on your last project, your latest project to being an author and speaker, I'd say mission accomplished because uh, you may have other books and other things to do, but you've done a very, just an excellent job of sharing for anybody who really wants to improve themselves in the leadership world. So thanks, Craig. It's been great to have you on the show and all the best as you continue on that new ladder. Thanks so much, Mark, and thanks for inviting me today. Well, that's our wrap. And please check with us next month for another show of The Practical CMO. And please take a look at the introductory material if you want to track Craig's book down. If you've got something you'd like to question, you might want to address to him directly. Thanks, everybody.